Matthew. This message is entitled, The Son of Man Has Authority. We're going to be looking actually at uh, three instances of miracles here, which begins in verse 23 of chapter 8 and goes through verse 8 of chapter 9. So to begin, I'm going to read verses 23 to 27. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. And he saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? So verses 18 to 22 here in chapter 8 gave uh, an account of two potential uh, disciples who came to Jesus. And based on the response that Jesus gave to each one of them, it seems that they had not counted or had not truly understood the cost of discipleship And so they didn't really understand then who Jesus was. And this is especially highlighted uh, by the encounter and and contrasting it with the centurion um, from earlier. So Jesus declared in that exchange that he's the son of man. And he is the son of man of the Old Testament prophecies, the one who will receive the kingdom from his father in heaven. But he lived on the earth at that time at a standard much lower than the creatures of the creation. So before the crown will come the cross. And the path before Jesus was filled with suffering and even death. And he even told a parable at one point because they thought that the kingdom would soon appear. He told a parable which featured a nobleman going away to a far country for a long time to receive a kingdom. Luke chapter 19 verses 12 to 27. So the path of following Jesus in this present age is a path that's filled with trials and with troubles and even death. Now we certainly don't know what lies ahead for each one of us and our experiences certainly differ. But nevertheless, we face trials and and troubles and even death in this life. Now, Jesus in this exchange shows that he commands total commitment to him. He doesn't suffer casual disciples. And I know that when we talk that way, there's a very hard edge to that, or maybe a sharp edge to that. Um, And I'm not trying to to blunt that, but just want to clarify, just to make sure that that we understand the disciples that Jesus chose, like Peter and James and John, um, they had a lot of shortcomings. Um, They had a lot of growing pains, as it were, as they were attempting to mature. So don't don't hear me saying Jesus commands total commitment as saying that you have to have an absolute sinless perfection. That's that's not the point. But, But it is true that Jesus does not abide with a casual discipleship. He's he's not... He's not one to to be taken lightly, to be trifled with, to be, um, uh, you you know, maybe put on like a a warm coat out of the closet whenever um, you have need of it because it's cold. 
Well, that is, that's not what following Jesus is all about. And that comes out very clearly in these discipleship exchanges that Jesus has along the way and these teaching elements um, that are a part of this gospel as well as his miraculous works. Well, Matthew follows this discipleship exchange beginning here in verse 23 of chapter 8 with another group of three miracles. And each of these miracles are connected. As you, as you read through them, you see a, a common theme running through these miracles. And even when you compare um, some of the other gospel accounts of, of some of these events, and you, you can see the choices that Matthew made as he's, as he's telling um, these, these events, and he's obviously deliberately giving emphasis where he intends to give emphasis, and that emphasis is falling on Jesus' authority in all three of these um, instances. And we see it exercised in three different realms. We see Jesus having an authority of command over nature, over the the creation. We see Jesus having an authority of command over demons, over the evil spirits of the spirit world. And Jesus having uh, the authority of command even over disease. And and that last one, of course, is an authority over disease, but it's actually more than that um, when we get to it. Well, each one of these instances say something about who Jesus is. And as we've seen before, sometimes the actual miracle itself is, is, is just contained within a, a brief statement. Um, so-and-so was, was healed or immediately or, or, or what have you. And there's a lot that surrounds it, oftentimes involving Jesus' words or words of, of someone else or, or other explanation. Well, each one of these is saying something about who Jesus is, and the authority that he has as the Son of Man, which title occurs in this section once again. So we're going to look at each of these in turn in verses 23 to 27, where Jesus silences the storm, in verses 28 to 34 in chapter 8, where Jesus deals with the demons, and in chapter 9, verses 1 to 8, where Jesus forgives sins. So we're going to begin with this first miracle where Jesus silences the storm, beginning here with verse number 23. And when he was entered into a ship, his disciples followed him. Now obviously there's an earlier reference back up in the chapter, I think verse number 18, where Jesus had given a commandment that they were going to cross over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And so here we have them doing that. They they are getting into a, a ship or into a boat, and the word that's used here, as I understand it, is, is very general, um, so it could mean a lot of different types of boats. Most likely, this would be a fishing boat uh, that, the, the type that were used at the time in common use, uh, even in commercial fishing at, at the time. Um, so they w- would have been a boat large enough to hold about a dozen men or so, and um, their nets and, and a haul of, of fish um, that they would have been able to carry, would have had no sails or, or anything um, like that, and most likely that's probably the type of boat um, that they were in. Verse number 24, and behold, there arose a great tempest in the sea, insomuch that the ship was covered with the waves, but he was asleep. Now, the word for tempest that is used here, seismos, actually in in the Greek, which we get uh, in English, we get the word seismic from, and it's, and it's actually a word that was very commonly used to describe earthquakes, the, the, the trembling of the earth. Now, it could be applied to storms at sea, 
Um, so that's not unusual for it to be applied, but it indicates that it is a particularly violent storm at sea, um, using this particular word to describe it. So the storm was so violent that we're told that the, the boat was being covered by the waves. And that word for covered there actually means to be hidden or to be to be veiled. And so we get the idea of, of great swells and great um, waves that were caused by these sudden um, high winds that had descended upon the Sea of Galilee. And these swells of water and things were hiding um, the boat. It was so tumultuous was the sea. But Matthew notes right there at the end, but in the midst of this, Jesus was asleep. Verse 25, And his disciples came to him and awoke him, saying, Lord, save us, we perish. So the disciples wake Jesus up, and essentially they are afraid of dying in this storm. It is is so violent, it is so um, tumultuous that it has caused them to fear for their life. And Jesus responds here in verse 26, He saith unto them, Why are ye fearful, O ye of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. So Jesus responds to them essentially with a rebuke. He questions how that they could be so afraid. And that question is is based on the fact that they had little faith. He uses this phrase, O ye of little faith. Now this, this term, little faith, is a reference to quality, not so much quantity of faith. In other words, their their faith was very weak, Jesus was saying. Why are you so afraid? Why is your your faith so weak? Now, this this expression, O ye of little faith, occurs four times in Matthew. And in reference to the disciples, it, it always refers to their failure to see beyond the immediate. All, all that they can see is, is whatever superficially is happening in the moment, and they can't see beyond that. There's always a, that limitation there, the weakness of their faith. And then he responds to the storm itself, and he speaks words of rebuke to the storm. And Matthew adds that, that his words resulted in a great calm. Now, when you think about this particular miracle, a very violent storm, the churning and great swells of water such that the boat was being hidden um, by the waves, and and then it results in an immediate great calm. Now, it certainly would be something that wouldn't be unusual for there to be a strong wind that suddenly stopped. I mean, that certainly could be possible. That's not that that difficult of a thing to um, imagine, though it might be rare So it's possible that that a wind might have ceased at once, but it certainly would be miraculous for a body of water that was churning and so tumultuous that it's being described with with terms used to refer to an earthquake, that the ship is being hidden in great swells of water for it to immediately be calm. It would take some time for that to calm down rather than immediately be calm. Well, of course... It was a miracle. Uh, the, wind, the wind ceased, and, and the water was immediately calm. Of course, it, it was a miracle. Um, and it was evident to them all that this was a great miracle. This was a miracle 
of great power that Jesus with his words worked from that boat. So the weak faith of the disciples, the weak faith of the disciples was in understanding fully who who Jesus was. I mean, he's the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. Jesus came to the earth to die. He has not yet started talking about that to his disciples, but he will before long. Jesus came to the earth to die, but it wasn't going to be by drowning in the Sea of Galilee. Yes, he came for that purpose, but, but his life was according to purpose. In other words, if they believed him to be the prophesied Messiah, then they should have understood all the things that he had to fulfill that wouldn't be cut short in this way. In other words, if this storm had have um, drowned Jesus and, and these disciples, then all of these prophecies would have gone unfulfilled. God's, God's plan from before the foundation of the world would have been short-circuited and overridden. And I, I'm, I'm certain if that were even possible that Satan and, and the rest of the demons would have tirelessly, ceaselessly worked to that end to cause that to happen. And, and they probably did um, in a number of ways. But, of course, that cannot happen. It could not happen. It's not possible. And so this is what Jesus is referring to. How, how can you be so afraid? How could you be so afraid to think that we're all going to die in this storm? And, again, it shows a weakness to their faith and, and, and an imperfection, certainly, of their understanding of all about who Jesus was. Then verse 27, it says, But the men marveled, saying, What manner of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? They were struck with wonder, with amazement at what Jesus did. The wind and the sea obeyed his command. This kind of power is not unheard of, but it's only ascribed to God in the Old Testament. There's a few different instances, and some of these that we have recently seen. There's one instance in Job chapter 38, verses 8 to 17, God himself speaking to Job. But there's a few instances in the Psalms, and we've already covered all of these. Psalm 29, verses 3 and 4 and 10 and 11. Psalm 65, verses 5 to 7. Psalm 89, verse 9. Psalm 107, verses 23 to 32. All of these are instances that refer to the power that God has over the wind and the waves, over the sea, over the water, how he establishes the bounds and says it can proceed no further, how that he can calm it with a word, and so on. And now here's Jesus in this boat in the Sea of Galilee doing that with a word. Well, they're, they're struck with wonder. Now, obviously, this is a miracle that expressed the divinity of Jesus Christ, showing that he had even authority over these aspects of creation. Let me get to the next instance that begins in verse 28, and that's Jesus dealing with these devils. And when he was come to the other side, into the country of the Gergesenes, there met him two possessed with devils, 
coming out of the tombs, exceeding fear, so that no man might pass by that way. So he comes to this village, which is likely about midway on the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. This would have put him in the territory of Decapolis. Now, Decapolis was a region that was dominated by Gentiles. Not only does he arrive at a region dominated by Gentiles, but he, he is at a place that is close to the tombs. And not only is he at a place close to the tombs, but he's also at, at a place that is close to some herds of pigs that are nearby. In other words, if Jesus' goal was to avoid the Jewish crowds, it seems like he couldn't have found a better spot than this one that he landed at. Now, Matthew notes that there were two men who were possessed with with demons who came out to meet him. Now, when you do look at the other gospel accounts here, um, uh, Mark and Luke, they they only tell of one man um, in this particular instance. But there's not a contradiction in these accounts because they do not say that it was only one man. They just tell of one man and, and, and the interaction with Jesus. And Matthew uh, simply just speaks of, of two men that were possessed of devils. Now, obviously, it is, it is a spot being um, near to the tombs and, and such no, that would have probably been a very likely spot. And perhaps there was even more um, than these two. But Matthew talks about these two that came out to meet him. Now, he describes them as a result of this demonic possession of being, of being fierce and violent. He's, he's describing them in terms that gives us the idea that, that they had uh, a great strength and they were, they were very violent. And su- such was the case that people were afraid to go that way because of them. Verse 29, And behold, they cried out, saying, What have we to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of God? Art thou come hither to torment us before the time? So these devils spoke out to Jesus and revealed the fact that they actually had some knowledge. They knew who Jesus was. They called him by name and called him the Son of God. If you recall in the book of Acts when you had that uh, attempted exorcism um, by, by the name of Jesus and, and, and by the name of Paul. And, and the, the evil spirit responds saying, you know, Jesus, Jesus we know and, and, and Paul we know, but who are you, uh, you know, that, that, are, that are speaking to, to command us? Well, they knew who Jesus was. They knew he was the Son of God. Not only did they know he, he was the Son of God, but notice what things that they say. They ask him why he had come there. Meaning what? To Decapolis, no, meaning to the earth. They knew he was the son of God. They knew he had come down to the earth from heaven. Why have you come here? A place where they essentially had some, had some, had some rain, had some liberty. They knew he was the son of God come down from heaven. So they asked, have you come down to torment or to torture or to inflict pain on, on us before the time? The time referred to is the future appointed time of judgment. We've already seen some references to that, and and we're not really very far into Matthew. They were aware of this future time of appointed judgment, and they were also aware of the fact that it was not time yet. So why have you come to the earth 
before the time have you come here to inflict pain on us? Notice also how that they're also acknowledging that Jesus is the one who will judge and punish them when that time does come. Then we see verse 30. And there was a good way off from them, a herd of many swine feeding. So Matthew adds this note here. There's this you know, these herd of swine away off. In verse 31, so the devils besought him, saying, If thou cast us out, suffer us to go away into the herd of swine. Now the word indicates that they begged Jesus. They begged Jesus to let them go into those pigs. And you'll notice here, they're asking permission. They're not commanding. They're not um, really just requesting. They're, they're asking permission. In other words, they know that they cannot go against what he commands. If he's going to cast them out, they know they're going to have to go where he commands, wherever that might be. And so they, they asked to be given permission, essentially, to go to these swine. Verse number 32. And he said unto them, Go. And when they were come out, they went into the herd of swine. And behold, the whole herd of swine ran violently down a steep place into the sea and perished in the waters. Notice again, he speaks the word of authority. He says, go. They go into the swine and immediately drive them off a cliff into the sea to their deaths, to the deaths of the swine, not the deaths of the demons. Now, when we see this immediate reaction from the pigs, I believe that we get some idea as to why they wanted to go into them. In other words, this was their goal. They wanted to go into these pigs so that they could drive them off of this cliff and kill them all. Why would they want to do that? Well, most likely, they wanted to do that to stir up opposition to Jesus. They are opposed. (laughs) They are opposed to God and and to Christ in every way. Not only that, we certainly have seen um, their anger being expressed when they have been um, exercised, when we have seen that in the, in the, in the accounts in the, in the New Testament, how they react violently and, and various things that, that might take place. So most likely they just wanted to stir up opposition to Jesus in these parts, and they did succeed. Verse 33 says, And when the devil was cast out, the dumb spake, and the multitudes marveled, saying, It was never so seen in Israel. So, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong verse. Verse number 30, yes, verse 33. Right verse, wrong chapter. And they that kept them fled and went their ways into the city and told everything and what was befallen to the possessed of the devils. So Matthew tells us now how that the farmers, the the keepers of of the swine, how that they fled, they ran away. That's the the language that he uses. Obviously, there was um, implication of they fearfully ran away. They go into the village and they they tell everybody what they had witnessed and and what they had seen. 
And verse 34 says, And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And when they saw him, they besought him that he would depart out of their coasts. So the result was this whole village was stirred up. They come out to see Jesus, and they begged him to leave their territory. Matthew here shows us Jesus going into Gentile territory, and in this case, being rejected by Gentiles. In other words, Matthew has has already alluded to the fact, and, and we certainly know that is so from the Old Testament as well, that Jesus' mission wasn't completely restricted to Israel. He truly is the Savior of the world, not just of those descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the rejection and opposition to Jesus is also not something that's entirely restricted to Israel. These Gentiles wanted him to leave. And even in a time when Gentiles are being gathered in, there are still many, many, many Gentiles who reject Jesus Christ and oppose him in numerous ways. Then we come to the third instance here in beginning with chapter 9 and verse number 1. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. So Jesus and the disciples left from that area. They returned to Capernaum. Uh, Capernaum was uh, something of a, of a home base during uh, this part of Jesus' ministry as he was in and around uh, northern Galilee and going out into into different places and so he has returned now to his city it says and behold they brought to him a man sick of the palsy lying on a bed and jesus seeing their faith said unto the sick of the palsy son be of good cheer thy sins be forgiven thee so some people brought a paralytic man to him um the implication here being that he could not get up from his bed Uh, We have no indication of what brought this condition on, uh, how long that he had suffered with this condition. We don't don't know any of those things. It seems that perhaps the the mention of the forgiveness of sins, that's a part of this healing as well, could indicate that it was somehow related to sin in in some way more directly rather than, than indirectly. But Jesus notes here, I'm sorry, Matthew notes here that Jesus saw their faith. In other words, their faith was was demonstrated by carrying this man to Jesus for healing. And he speaks, but instead of pronouncing this man healed, he pronounces his sins forgiven. Notice the next verse, verse 3. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves... This man blasphemeth. Now, Matthew notes that certain scribes were present. We saw the scribes in the previous passage and talked a little bit about them. Um, But when you actually compare with Luke's account here in in Luke chapter 5 and verse number 12, Luke makes note of the fact that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law from all over Galilee, Judea, and even from Jerusalem that were present here at this time when this man was brought to Jesus. Now, Matthew only mentions the scribes and, and, and the, the words that they, were, that they were saying, but they had obviously 
come out for that purpose, to see Jesus, to assess him. Obviously, word about Jesus and and his doings um, had reached them, again, even from Jerusalem, as Luke notes, and they had come out to, to see and to assess Jesus for themselves. And Matthew notes that they said to themselves that Jesus blasphemed by pronouncing sins forgiven. And they said that because no one could forgive sins but God. And so for Jesus to pronounce sins forgiven would be to make himself equal with God. Verse 4, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? So Jesus knew their thoughts, and he questioned why they would think such evil as to think that Jesus was a blasphemer. And really at this point, they're inching close to that unforgivable sin, unpardonable sin that we will also encounter later in Matthew. Verse 5, Jesus asked them, For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. So Jesus essentially asks them, Which is the greater act of power? Is the greater act of power to forgive sins? Or is the greater act of power to tell this man to stand up and walk? Well, obviously, forgiving sins was the hardest. And as they're thinking about it, it certainly was the hardest to do because it was impossible in their mind. No one can forgive sins but God. And this is a man that we see in front of us. He's not God, so he can't forgive sins. That's impossible. Verse number 6. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go unto thine house. So Jesus demonstrates that he is the Son of Man with authority, not only by doing the greater miracle of pronouncing sins forgiven, but by doing the lesser miracle also as a sign that he had such authority. And the word for power there, it is exousia. It is the word for authority. He had authority to forgive sins, which he could only have if he was indeed God in the flesh, which, of course, he is. Now, this verse uses that title, Son of Man, again, that we encountered earlier. And here again, it is connected with authority showing this connection with Daniel's prophecy that Jesus was the promised Messiah. So he commanded the man to arise, to pick up his bedding, and to walk to his house. Verse 7 simply says, And he arose and departed to his house. He immediately got up, and he went home, like Jesus said. Then we have the reaction in verse 8. But when the multitude saw it, They marveled and glorified God, which had given such power unto men. They were astonished. And here again, the word for power that they use is authority. This word does not refer to strength or ability, but it refers to the exercising of a right. 
This means that they were astonished that Jesus forgave sins. That was signified by the miracle of healing. This, of course, was thought to only belong to God and not to any man. But, of course, Jesus wasn't merely a man, but indeed the Son of Man. So these passages show us that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. On the one hand, we, we see here that he's not subjected to random chance happenings. His disciples, having weak faith, thought that he, he may perhaps be killed along with the rest of them on this boat, some random accident at sea. Or was Jesus going to be killed by being trampled by a camel or some other um, random thing that might occur? Of course not. Jesus is not subject to any random chance happenings. He came to the earth for a purpose to accomplish and facilitate the fulfillment of all Scripture. Even standing before Pilate, Jesus testified saying, you can have no power at all against me unless it's given to you from heaven. In other words, Pilate was saying, don't you realize who I am, that I have the power to to, um, condemn you, essentially to execute you, or I have the power to set you free? She says, you don't have any power at all. And you can do absolutely nothing against me unless it's given to you from heaven. So Jesus was not subjected to random chance happenings. And from that, we also need to understand that that's also true of his followers. We're not subjected to random occurrences. They may seem random to us. They they come at us um, unknown and unexpected and unlooked for. Sometimes we, these things happen that we, we just have no explanation for. And, and it can be a very painful experience when we see something happen to us or to our loved ones or, or maybe someone else in our, in our family or in the church or, or whatever, and it just, it just seems to, be, to make no sense. But we're not subjected to random occurrences. Rather, God is completely in control. Now, we don't know the path of our lives the way that Jesus knew the path of his. We don't know the path of our lives that way. But there is still yet a path that has been ordained by God, and we're not going to shortcut it. But then when you think about it, on the other hand, this is also a great assurance. Jesus knew that he was here for a purpose and that he would fulfill that purpose. All the events and the various things that he encountered and took place, all these things were ordained by God. He knows that. Jesus also gave a great demonstration of power, power over nature. Not only does he command nature, but he created it and he owns it. Psalm 50 and verse 10, For every beast of the forest is mine and the cattle upon a thousand hills. So it might be puzzling to us, why would Jesus allow those demons to simply destroy these herds of swine? Well, doesn't that just seem like a a big waste? And and why, why would he permit that to happen? But I think if we keep pressing that question, then we're also missing something about who he is. He's the creator, and he is the owner of everything 
he has complete authority to do as he wills with his own. And he doesn't owe us any explanation. And doesn't really give us any explanation for all of his doings. Think about Jesus' power here over wind, over water, over demons, over diseases. And yet all that power, as great as it is, such that that men marveled about it, all that power, as great as it is, is considered lesser than the power that he had over sins. This group of miracles shows that sin truly is the greater problem that we face. And of course, forgiveness is only had through the cross. How could Jesus confidently forgive sins as he stands there never having yet been crucified? Because he was as as sure going to that cross as that the Son is going to come up again tomorrow. Why? Because God had ordained this before the foundation of the world. He knew he was the lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. He knew he was going to that cross. He could pronounce forgiveness of sins. So Jesus forgave sins fully knowing that he he is going to the cross to die. And nothing is going to prevent that. Nothing's going to circumvent that. Nothing's going to shortcut that. Nothing's going to mess that up, for lack of a better way to put it. It is certain to happen. And Jesus demonstrates his authority and control over all of these things.